He and Bush saw their jobs in office, that it's both good politics, but also actually a requirement of the job to get things done. And that requires working with the world as it is, whether that means Democrats who control the House or Soviets who control a massive arsenal of nuclear weapons. I'm Perry Rogers, and I'm a brand specialist. I'm Ed Borgato, and I'm an investor. And our conversations are about the tension between the head and the heart in the way people make decisions and their point of view on important issues. This is The Head and the Heart. Welcome, everyone, to The Head and the Heart. This is Perry Rogers. And this is Ed Borgato. Remember that our show is available on Spotify, Podcast One, and Apple Podcasts. Peter Baker is an American journalist and author who is a chief White House correspondent for The New York Times and a political analyst for MSNBC. President Trump is the fourth president he has covered after Barack Obama, George W. Bush, and Bill Clinton. After being briefly assigned as Jerusalem Bureau Chief for The Times, Baker was, in December 2016, reassigned back to the White House beat for the incoming Trump administration. Prior to joining the New York Times in 2008, Baker was a reporter for 20 years at the Washington Post, where he covered the White House during the presidencies of Bill Clinton and George W. Bush. In between stints at the White House, Baker and his wife, Susan Glasser, spent four years as Moscow bureau chiefs, chronicling the rise of Vladimir Putin, the rollback of Russian democracy, the Second Chechen War, and the terrorist attack on a theater in Moscow. Baker also covered the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. Susan Glasser is an American journalist, author, and news editor. She currently writes for The New Yorker, which includes her column, Letter for Trump's Washington. Additionally, she is a contributor to CNN. She has previously served as editor of Politico during the 2016 election cycle, founding editor of Politico magazine, and editor-in-chief of Foreign Policy magazine, which won three national magazine awards during her tenure. Before joining Foreign Policy, Glasser spent a decade at the Washington Post. Peter Baker and Susan Glasser are the authors of Kremlin Rising, Vladimir Putin's Russia and the End of Revolution, and The Man Who Ran Washington, The Life and Times of James A. Baker III. It's the latest book that we'll be talking about today. That's quite a resume. How'd you do with the book? I was riveted. In fact, I'm telling you, I, I think that my wife now has heard the audio version because I kept reading portions to her. I, I was surprised with how much he had done and how unique his position is in our country. I, I mean, obviously, you know, I'm, I grew up knowing his name and hearing him in the news, but his accomplishments were um, extensive. What do you think, Ed? I think the book was heavy. It was long. And I loved it um, from beginning to end. I learned a lot. Uh, and it was, you know, like you said, you know, for our generation, Generation X, James Baker, you know, was a major figure in public life. And you and I were both, you know, always news junkies and sort of, you know, aware of what was happening in the world, even when we were kids. And so I remember him you know, very clearly. And so much of what's in the book are things I remember from the news. So the history feels very fresh. And, um, but I really appreciate, you know, reading the backstory, the inside take on the things that, you know, I, I, I remember going on. 
I was surprised, and we'll get to this in our interview with them, but I was surprised how certain things developed. I had no idea. I think that when you are young, you and I were in our uh, you know, late teens, early 20s, um, I think that you think that there's an intentionality that exists with anything that you see in the news. And what I appreciated about this book was that it took you inside the room with great detail and made you realize that some things just happen. I remember thinking to myself in the 80s, well, the adults are really in control of things. And then you get a little older and you realize, well, <laughs> the adults really aren't all that in control of things. And when you were able to read a book like this that goes so deep into the details of history, you realize just how much luck and skin of their teeth and just how difficult it is and how history happens to you and you have to manage and adjust, you know, in real time. And the adults are not in control. They're, no, they're, I, they're trying to figure it out. I think that's really well said. I, I mean, look, you know, there's a pragmatism that James Baker always had and that allowed him to adjust to the circumstances that were happening around him. And what seems to have come in in the mid nineties is this approach that you can just insist your will into a situation. And we've seen that type of demagoguery uh, increase and step up over the last several years. And I think that what this book does a good job of, of calling us back to is how important it is to adjust to what's actually happening because you don't get to control every element of something. You actually get to control very little. And, you know, James Baker and George H.W. Bush really made a lot of adjustments and they made them on the fly. It's interesting thinking about Jim Baker, George H.W. Bush, and that era of Republicans. You know, Baker specifically, who's the subject of this book that we're talking about today, um, you know, he was conservative, but he wasn't an activist. And um, he was cautious and restrained man. You know, he, he generally believed in, in smaller governments and lower taxes, but... You know, as it says in the book, he didn't have any sweeping political belief system. It wasn't ideological. Uh, the book was fantastic. It's meticulously researched, and the narrative is incredible. You conducted 215 interviews with 170 people, and it's a window into our history at a time when we could stand to be reminded of what pragmatism looks like. What triggered the idea for the two of you to write about the life of James Baker? And maybe just as importantly, why now? Well, thank you, by the way, to both of you for having us on. It's fantastic to be with you today. Uh, and, uh, you know, the why now question is makes me laugh, if only because, of course, we had no intention of it being now. <laughs> uh, and we certainly did not set out to spend seven years on this book. Uh, but the answer, of course, is Donald Trump is why now, because it took us a lot longer because we actually have day jobs. And the news, in case you haven't noticed, and I'm sure you have, has been a little bit crazy <laughs> The last Wait, something going on with Donald Trump? You know, and I, I don't want to spoil uh, the story for you since we're talking about history here. But, you know, in many ways, Peter and I, from the very beginning, had this notion uh, that it was an opportunity to write a big book, not only about Jim Baker, whose own story is so fascinating, but also about Washington and, you know, the nature of power and how much this moment in time, you know, when Washington ran the world uh, from the end of Watergate to the end of the Cold War, 
was really past us. And so even when we started in on the book, which was in 2013, the, you know, dim mists of the Obama era, uh, you know, there was already a sense of this dysfunction and gridlock and, you know, that, that Baker's era for good and for ill was, was definitively in the past. And of course that's only become more the case now as we sit to you speaking from home, because we don't go to the office anymore and we don't do lots of the things that, that we used to do. Reading the book and, you know, I, I sort of, like I mentioned before, the Meacham biography of, of Bush, because of the relationships are so close. It was like in some areas of the book, seeing the same scene again, but from someone else's perspective. For both of them, um, it seems like the big fork in the road in Jim Baker's life was one that he didn't really take, but it sort of happened to him. And that was George H.W. Bush moving to Houston and them developing a friendship. And I think it's safe to say that outside of their families, certainly in the case of Jim Baker, outside of his families, as it pertains to your book, um, that was the most important relationship in his life. And it really shaped his entire life professionally and personally. So just take us through that relationship. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. That's one of the things that was fascinating by doing this book was seeing how history really does happen by accident sometimes, right? I mean, had Jim Baker and George Bush not met on a country club tennis courts in Houston, it's very possible, certainly possible, Baker wouldn't have been Secretary of State. And, and it's certainly possible, actually, that Bush wouldn't have been president. That The two of them were so important to each other for decades to come. But the fascinating part of their friendship is it was a friendship long before politics, right? You can't, I can't think of another Secretary of State and president who were personal friends outside of politics. And these guys were friends for a decade before they even really became part political partners. So much so that families had, you know, Thanksgiving football together, much like, you know, you think of the Kennedys playing football outside on the Thanksgiving day. Uh, Baker and Bush won two doubles tournaments at the Houston Country Club tennis course. They still talk about that. Baker still talks about that to this day. And President Bush talked about that to the end. We interviewed him. Uh, and so, yeah, it was a brotherly friendship and it was, and it went through its moments, right? When Baker's first wife dies, the one person he consults, the one person he tells, he confides in is George Bush. He doesn't even talk to his mother about it. He doesn't talk to his kids about it. He didn't really even talk to Mary Stewart, his wife about it. I mean, she knew, but he, he thought in that era, I'm going to keep it from her so she can have a good final months you know, of her life. The one person he tells is George Bush. And the one people, the only people who see her outside of the family in those last days was the uh, the Bushes, uh, Barbara and George. So that's a friendship that's unlike any other. When you talk about how luck plays a role in all of this, and after George H.W. Bush goes to D.C., he brings Baker there in 75. But the Republican Party had been decimated by Watergate. And so here's a lawyer from Houston who arrives in 75, and by 76, he's the chairman of President Ford's campaign. And so there's some luck that falls into that as well. Oh, absolutely. I mean, Baker is, in fact, a great example of, you know, the first rule of politics, which is that, you know, like everybody's smart, you know, <laughs> uh, and uh, he's a lucky bastard, really. I mean, you know, the Watergate decimated an entire generation of Republican operatives. And by the way, Baker's luck was not just in the macro sense of timing, but even just narrowly, he actually had already begun to express some interest in politics and moving to Washington. And I found an incredible uh, example of this. He came to Washington during 
the Nixon second term, and he was considering and was being considered for a, a pretty senior job at the Justice Department to run the civil division. That's one of the biggest jobs at the Justice Department. He had an interview with the Attorney General uh, that was canceled because that was the very day that Richard Nixon, trying desperately to dig out of the hole of Watergate, fires Ehrlichman and Haldeman and the Attorney General, right? And so talk about luck, right? You know, Jim Baker could have ended up in the Nixon Justice Department. Uh, and I think he himself uh, used to reflect on that and, and say how lucky he was that he didn't end up in that Watergate mess. Uh, you know, so he has this sort of introduction to Washington. And again, uh, just in terms of the quirks of fate, since we're on that theme, he gets this political appointment at the Commerce Department, which was not then, of course, and is not now and has never been the center of the political action. And how does he get in to Jerry Ford's political inner circle. Well, part of it is being smart and impressing others. He impresses Dick Cheney at the White House in a few meetings. But then again, fate intervenes. Jerry Ford uh, was really not a national political figure. And he had like one guy back home in Grand Rapids, Michigan, who used to run his campaigns. And this guy gets killed in a car accident in the middle of the 1976 campaign and his job was going to be to line up delegates for the convention and this happened to be uh, the last contested convention in American political history uh, and so this was a job that really mattered and so again Baker is pulled by Cheney into this role which never would have been available had this free car accident never occurred. And then let's talk about that um, because when he starts to become a delegate hunter you guys do a great job of taking us through the ethic that Baker had during that process. Everybody wants to have access to the White House, and some people are asking for jobs. And he's meticulous in keeping notes about where his line is and where it isn't, that he will give you access maybe to a state dinner, but he's not going to get you a job. Um, and that ethic matters, particularly coming out of Watergate. Is, is that right? Is that how you see it? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Watergate is the defining event of his of his early political career. So it, it, it shapes his thinking about how you do politics, right? I'm not going to do what those guys did. I'm not going to get in trouble the way they did. I'm not. I'm going to draw these lines. And not only did he draw lines, he made sure to keep a record of it, right? This is the ultimate act of Washington self-preservation. You keep a file with memos of all the different illegal or unethical or skeezy things somebody asked you to do so you can prove later that you didn't do them. Uh, which is helpful for biographers later in life because, of course, then we got a sense of things. Now, sometimes the lines were a little fuzzy. Why is it that it's okay to invite somebody to a state dinner, for instance, with the queen, but it's not okay to have them, you know, what was the other example? Talk about their sewer party. Yeah, well, talk about their sewer party. Like, there were lines that seemed a little fuzzy at times, but he did have lines, and that was important in that era. And I think he kept those lines through his time in office. And that was, again, I think uh, a formative moment. The way he came into politics was interesting. He was much, but that was the sort of central tension of his career between being, you know, on the political side versus governing. He seemed much more interested in governing and problem solving. He wanted to be viewed as a statesman, but he keep he kept getting pulled back in uh, to the political side. You know, movie ever saw? <laughs> yeah, you know. D- you know, I guess his part of his part of his you know legend was was cemented when you know Bush convinced when he resigned from Treasury to go run Bush's campaign. 
Um, Dukakis was up by 17 points coming out of his convention, um, as you point out in the book. And that was a gigantic turnaround and a big hole for an incumbent vice president. Well, that's the thing, right? Like Baker, of course, yearned, as you said, to be a statesman, to be a principal in Washington terms, right? That's like, you know, the guy who has his own seat at the table as opposed to being there merely in the reflected glory of his or her boss, you know, being the staffer uh, or the handler or the fixer versus being, uh, you know, the, the guy who... Uh, is there and bringing others along with him. However, Jim Baker was just really damn good at politics and arguably actually his skill, even when he became Treasury Secretary and Secretary of State, was because he was so skilled at at a certain kind of politics, the art of understanding uh, and negotiating and figuring out uh, you know, how the, the balls would careen off each other, uh, as someone put it to us. And, uh, you know, so he... He, he also saw politics, I think, as a pretty grubby business in a way that uh, George H.W. Bush did, too. And uh, both of them justified it in the case of that 1988 Dukakis campaign. Uh, they went really grubby. They went really dirty. And in part, I think that's because Jim Baker, one thing that every single person we spoke with was very clear on, and you know, you can see it if you talk with him yourself, he is just absolutely ruthlessly unsentimental when it comes to analyzing problems and people. And of course, that's a great skill. A lot of people believe their own BS, right? A lot of people, uh, you know, just have trouble uh, or are colored by ideology or, you know, in, in politics or uh, sentimentality, loyalty, those factors. They just don't uh, compute for him when it comes to actually looking at a problem. So he looks at the problem of being 17 points down uh, in that 1988 race, and he is willing to do essentially whatever it takes. They take Michael Dukakis, essentially a relatively, you know, mild-mannered technocrat centrist from Massachusetts, uh, and turn him into an unpatriotic, flag-burning, Pledge of Allegiance-hating, criminal-loving, you know, uh, hater of America, right? And that is a ruthlessly effective campaign. The difference from today, right, where we clearly are living in this age of scorched-earth politics, is that Baker and also George Herbert Walker Bush, who in the end is accountable for the campaign that was run in his name, the two of them see that as a means to a very different end than the end that we have today, right? The first thing that Baker does after that brutal 1988 campaign is he sits down with Democrats, Jim Wright, the Speaker of the House, Jimmy Carter, the former president, and finds a way to solve the Contra War, which had been probably the most contentious and divisive foreign policy issue of the 1980s. And that, you know, he and Bush saw their jobs in office uh, as doing something which unfortunately has sort of like dissipated from our atmosphere entirely in Washington today, which is the notion that it's both good politics, but also actually a requirement of the job to get things done. And that requires working with the world as it is, whether that means Democrats who control the House or Soviets who control a massive arsenal of nuclear weapons. Yeah, I mean, a lot of that kind of diplomacy involves negotiating with your own political rivals domestically as much as it does with your your foreign rivals but going back going back to that campaign in 1988 which was famously um dirty most famously for the willie horton ad i thought it was interesting that when he ran for attorney general in 1978 that there was 
something relating to his opponent, Mark White, that he did not want to exploit. It was very similar to the Willie Horton ad or situation. Um, His opponent for attorney general in Texas in 1978 had um, decided not to extradite uh, 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 someone, the criminal to New York, fearing that he wouldn't get a fair trial. Um, and then that criminal went on to kill two people in Texas. And at the time, Baker decided he didn't want to use that in the campaign, the campaign that he lost, feeling like, okay, you know, am I really going to go out there and say these people died because of my opponent? That 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 feels dirty. So my question is, do you think this moral algebra that he does is he more willing to do something years later because it was in service of a friend and he felt like he needed to do it because he was doing it for, for his best friend, George Bush to be elected. And it's not something he was willing to do for his own election. Yeah. And I'm so glad you pointed this out. You're the only one who's noticed that story, which I love in the book. You're right. Thank you for, for pointing that out. Uh, The evolution right over the course of 10 years being unwilling to do it in the Texas race, and then suddenly willing to do it on a much grander, bigger, more important scale uh, is fascinating. And he never really addresses that with us. He's not an introspective guy. He's not going to get on the couch with us. And uh, even for all our interviews and, and, and plumb the inner depths of his soul. But I do think that he, I think that over time, you know, politics, you know, you, you justify things you wouldn't uh, earlier in your career. I think over time you begin to think, well, you know, it's just a grubby business, as Susan put it. And so, yeah, this isn't pleasant and I'm not all that happy with it, but be that as it may. And maybe because, of you, as you say, he was in service of Bush as opposed to his own race uh, that made him feel like that was somehow different. It also may be that he had a Lee Atwater at that time who had already latched on to the Willie Horton case by that point and was running with it even before Baker kind of comes into the campaign and was a strong willed guy. And it may be that Baker deferred to him in a way that he didn't do on his own campaign. Right. Um, Cause I don't think there's a lot of evidence of Baker personally doing much on the Willie Horton thing. When we asked him about it years later, of course, he said he, there's a moment where he allows, yeah, you know, when you talk about regrets, that's one that's a fair one to bring up. And then he kind of backtracks as well. But generally, I think we did the right thing. I did what we had to do in 1988 because we were 17 points down and because we won. And that's what you have to do to win. There are plenty of examples, though, where when he won, as you say, Susan, he did sit back down with President Carter, Jim Wright, um, but also with Ed Meese, when he was successful in getting the um, chief of staff role, he did a very good job of sitting down and making sure that Ed felt that there was a place to land. Um, talk a little bit about his ability to do that, given that he was unsympathetic in a lot of ways, but that there's, a, there's an empathy there and there's a strategy there that's relevant. And how that compares to today when there's a political victory, what we do with our rivals. Well, that's right. I mean, look, I think you're right to say that there's a strategy there. Baker was clearly an extremely calculating figure. Uh, And, you know, when I said he was ruthlessly unsentimental, I meant, you know, even, you know, the sort of smooth part of Jim Baker also uh, calculating and unsentimental. Uh, His cousin, Preston Moore, famously coined this phrase to refer to Jim Baker, called him the Velvet Hammer, uh, which then appeared on a Time magazine cover uh, about Baker when Baker was the Secretary of State. And, uh, you know, we were talking when the book came out with Maureen Dowd, who wrote a famous and really excellent piece uh, about Baker when he was Secretary of State 
with her colleague, Tom Friedman at the time. And she didn't normally cover Baker. He was secretary of state. She covered the, the White House under President Bush. And she said, you know, I went in there uh, and I came out. I had to pat my pocket. I realized it had been picked. Uh, Baker learned that art form. Uh, and you mentioned this very famous, almost iconic moment where he uh, essentially steals the plum job of White House Chief of Staff from Ed Meese. Uh, uh, you know, Ronald Reagan's other associates were very concerned that Meese, uh, while being the kind of ideological keeper of the flame of the Reagan revolution, did not have what it took to be a successful manager and leader of the kind of administration of the White House. And they put up Jim Baker instead for this role. And Reagan, in this sort of famously passive way that he had of managing things and avoiding confrontation, basically makes Baker the one who's responsible for smoothing it over with Meese. Uh, and, you know, that's a lesson that he learned very quickly, that zero-sum politics doesn't work uh, in a small town, a company town like Washington, especially a company town where the two-party system was a way of life, right? You know, you weren't going to get rid of Democrats. And in fact, the Democrats were in charge of the House of Representatives for the entire time uh, of the, both the Reagan and the first Bush presidency, just like you weren't going to get rid of the Soviets. I mean, obviously, and kind of miraculously from the point of view of uh, Baker and his compatriots, the Soviet Union did disappear <laughs> on their watch, but certainly they saw the Cold War as a, a sort of an unending reality. Uh, and you had to deal with the Soviets. You, you, there was no possibility of a sort of uh, absolute we win, they lose scenario. And I, I do think that uh, informed uh, what was a very calculated and a strategic approach to politics. When you mentioned the uh, how destructive, you know, trying to opt or how um What's the word I'm looking for? You know, how ineffective it is to work with a zero-sum mindset in Washington. One of the great little tidbits from that time was that when Jimmy Carter was in Nicaragua, uh, as you write in the book, uh, you know, as an as a election observer, he actually wrote the statement for Jim Baker. Jim Baker called to consult with him as to what was going on down in Nicaragua, and Carter wrote a statement. Yeah, imagine that today. Imagine if that had been uh, public today. I mean, Baker would be flayed on Twitter right. and conservative media uh, would have been. And this is one reason why it is different, because there are so many more uh, bullhorns for people on the edges of our ideological spectrum to get their view out. And in some ways, obviously, that's good. The bigger marketplace of ideas, the better. But it also means that it creates a backlash for anybody to do what Baker did with Jimmy Carter, because there would be uh, a payoff. You, you, you had to pay a price if yeah. you were seen as working with a Jimmy Carter, and you have to decide whether it's really worth the grief you're going to get if you do that. Yeah, well, I mean, in every walk of life, it makes perfect sense if you're trying to solve a problem that you would call the former president who's on the ground in an area where you have interests and you're concerned with what's happening. In every walk of life, you would do that, except for politics for fear of being attacked by partisans. Well, that's right. And look, by the way, politics did operate until recently this way. I mean, we're now in a sort of extreme caricature moment where the president of the United States has said he knows more than the experts on literally every single subject. I, I, I ran a list 
not that long ago in my column is something like, you know, 40 things from nuclear science, where he says that he had an uncle who was a professor at MIT, and therefore he knows more about physics than, than you and I do, but also obviously, you know, public health and, you know, just every single thing. And I, I mean, I'm sort of laughing, but the truth is, is that, uh, you know, there was a sense that there was a broad spectrum of issues you know, that weren't particularly ideological. Uh, there were certainly plenty of issues that were. I mean, look, you know, the 1980s were not exactly a kind of quiet, unideological, non-polarized time. I mean, Reagan at the time was seen as, you know, an extremely polarizing figure. Uh, and it makes you, um, I think, sit back and, and realize, well, what is the real difference? Uh, and some of that obviously is simply the character of the president, right? You know, I think that growing up, as a kid in the 1980s, right? Like Reagan, his policies might've been opposed by large majorities, even throughout his two terms as president, but he wasn't seen as a venal or terrifying figure. He wasn't, uh, you know, he wasn't seen, he was a grandfather who liked to, you know, have TV dinners with Nancy. (laughs) How quaint, right? Yeah, but he but he had an overarching theme, and Ed and I have talked about this a lot. Where he said that we don't have political enemies; we have political opponents. And so the very framing of that is very different for how you're going to proceed. And you see that in I, I just think you guys do such a masterful job of talking about Baker's time at Treasury and the ta- ta- the Tax Reform Act of 1986, and how Baker right away starts to work with Rostenkowski across the aisle. And, and also steps out when he needs to. But before we get to that, because you know, I was telling Ed earlier, I'm convinced my wife has now heard the audio version of this book with me as the reader, which is not a good reader, but it's because I kept reading stories to her. Um, if you wouldn't mind, talk a little bit about how Baker becomes Secretary of Treasury, because I thought that was riveting and surprising. That's not how you got your job. No, so, no. <laughs> so Baker, of course, had been White House Chief of Staff for four years by this point, desperate to get out. It's a real awful job in a lot of ways, powerful, important, all those things. But he used to, am I allowed to use this word on the podcast? He used yep. to describe it as the rat fuck because you were constantly getting stabbed in the back on all sorts of directions. And he was trying to get out for years, actually. And one day, at the end of the first term, right before the second term was about to begin, he gets an angry phone call from Don Regan, the Secretary of Treasury. He was mad about some league, and he's going to quit in protest. And it's Baker's job to calm him down. He goes over to the Treasury Department. Okay, Don, let's calm down. And they have it out, and Regan calms down. And Regan basically says, you look really tired. And Baker says, I am really tired. He says, and Reed kind of just spouts out out of nowhere, apparently. Well, we should f- switch jobs. <laughs> Why don't we just trade jobs? You be Treasury Secretary and I'll be Chief of Staff. And Baker is like a drowning man with a life preserver that's just been sent, thrown his way. You know, he's so eager to get out. And he's particularly eager to become a principal, to become, as we said, a statesman, not a fixer. And a Treasury Secretary is a pretty darn good job. And he basically says to Reed, you serve about that? Don't say that if you're not serious, because I, you know, I'll say yes. And Regan was. Regan thought being chief of staff would be good. It was a center of power, and he liked that idea of being prime minister himself. And so just like that, suddenly they switch jobs. Regan says, yeah, sure, that's great. And it becomes probably the most consequential job switch, at least in modern American times, right? Because even Nancy Reagan, Michael Deaver would say later, had Baker still been around, we never would have had Iran-Contra. It never would have gone south the way things did. So, But it was, it was Baker's escape route. 
But you also see Reagan's hands-off approach. I mean, ultimately, they pretty much just present the idea to him. And he says, yeah, sounds good. In fact, Beaver says, Mr. President, I brought you somebody closer to your age to play with, meaning Don Regan. Uh, and, and Reagan's like, oh, yeah, okay, that sounds good. And he was a passive figure on things like that. He didn't want to be doing personnel and mediating between all the infighting and all that. Um, is there anybody like Jim Baker? I mean, he start, begins his career as Undersecretary of Commerce. He becomes the White House Chief of Staff under Reagan. He becomes Treasury Secretary under Reagan. He becomes Secretary under State under Bush after running his campaign and getting him elected. He becomes chief of staff again under Bush when it's time to get reelected. He's at the center of the fall of the Soviet Union and managing that. He's an integral part of the 86 tax reform. Um, He is the one that recommended Greenspan take the role of Fed chairman. Greenspan served nearly 20 years, I think 19 years. So that was enormously consequential to the country. Um, and arguably the, 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 the piecing together of uh, the allies for the first Gulf War might arguably be the biggest you know, foreign policy achievement. Um, who belongs on a list with Jim Baker, who has never been elected to anything to have had this much influence and be this consequential to the governance of the country? Well, you know, it's it's funny. It's a short list. Uh, uh, you know, Tom Donilon, who was President Obama's uh, national security advisor, that's that's exactly what he said to us when we were talking about how we were working on this project. He said, you know, you've got to consider Baker to be the most unimportant, unelected official of the last 50 years. And, you know, the thing is, obviously, you have a Henry Kissinger is one example, but Kissinger's role was limited uh, to the realm of foreign policy and international relations, whereas Baker's uh, role in politics, electoral politics, domestic politics is such that, you know, Peter often says, well, it's like, you know, imagine Karl Rove and Henry Kissinger rolled up in one. Uh, but even there, Rove uh, is very associated only with one uh, uh, President George W. Bush. It's extremely unusual to have a political strategist uh, who uh, has a dominant role across different presidencies. You know, you think of Carville and Bagala with uh, Bill Clinton, uh, you know, not with Hillary Clinton. You think of Rove with George W. Bush. And so, uh, again, it's it's the span uh, of time at which Baker occupied sort of the heights of uh, Washington. I And politics in the biggest sense of the word, you know, including uh, the politics of the world. And actually, it's interesting. That's what he, in the end, called his memoir uh, from his time as Secretary of State, The Politics of Diplomacy, which I think was actually uh, a pretty artful term for, by the way, it's kind of a thick brick of a book. Uh, I'm not necessarily recommending that you run out and read that one. Read ours first. (laughs) It's funny funny that he, it's funny that, you know, this is, what happened in his life because when Bush, as you say in the book, first approached him to help him with his Senate race, um, in the, uh, he said that I don't know anything about politics and I'm a Democrat. Yeah. <laughs> and we can fix the latter part, Bush says, right? Yeah, exactly. The only other one I can think of, and we think about these names all the time, are the people out there. I sometimes think about the more recent people. I think about Leon Panetta. I think about Bob Gates, who served in multiple administrations in important positions and are people who like to work across the aisle. But even then, of course, as Susan said, they didn't have their hands in quite so many 
really historic moments. Right. Well, and when Panetta, Panetta was in Congress, so he had been elected. He had his name on about, he had won an election. You know, yes. I, am I crazy to say that Baker belongs on a list with Alexander Hamilton? No, I, you know, I mean, look, he didn't found the, help found the country. Or, or, <laughs> of course you know. not. But in terms of people who've had an influence on the country that have never yeah. held office. He didn't have Hamilton's um, uh, philosophical, you know, framework, right? He didn't yeah. sort of. He wouldn't through, be writing that, you know, uh, Federalist Papers. That would not be his yeah. thing. But you're yeah. right in terms of consequence. I think he, he is up there in terms of people who had consequence. Let me ask you this, though. You know, you guys use the words uh, prudence and restraint in talking about Baker and his diplomacy. And you also were both uh, bureau chiefs in Moscow, and you've written a book on Putin. And I just wonder whether or not there was this window of time, a little bit like that short story of Flowers for Algernon, where the U.S. could have been more engaged and not used that restraint uh, in helping the Soviet Union uh, through their time. And instead, they we stayed back. We didn't want to look like we were political. And and I wonder if that restraint allowed Russia to fall back in uh, away from democracy and into the arms of Putin. And if that's a regret that Baker has. It is, a, it is, I think, one of the enduring questions about this period of time, right? Is like, you know, we often, and Baker and Bush are rightly praised uh, for helping to sort of uh, lead the peaceful, largely peaceful end of the Cold War. Uh, but you could turn that around and say, okay, but uh, what about the post-Cold War peace? And how did they do on that part of it? And, you know, Baker, of course, would say, and I think he's right, well, look, uh, you know, the, the politics just simply weren't there for any kind of massive Marshall Plan uh, like uh, investment in the economic and uh, military transition of Russia and the former Soviet Union to to a whole uh, to a degree as was there in World War II and its aftermath when, by the way, it was actually the threat of a resurgent Soviet Union that was the reason that Americans were willing to keep spending uh, overseas. Uh, and, 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 and in that early 90s period, we forget this, but in fact, it really, the whole talk was the exact opposite politically here in the U.S. It was about the um, uh, peace, dividend. peace dividend. And, uh, you know, the idea of like, how quickly can we draw down troops? And actually, the early part of the Bush administration was a race with the Soviets. Uh, they both kept one upping each other and like, well, we're going to pull out 200,000 troops. Well, we're going to, you know, get rid of this many missiles. And so that the momentum was actually all the other direction. Um What's interesting is that I think Baker and Bush envisioned at times, and, and, and they thought a lot about, well, what is the post-Cold War order? You know, Bush is famous for the New World Order thing. They kind of had glimpses of envisioning a Soviet Union that was not only gone and a Warsaw Pact that was gone, but, hey, what if we had Russia that was a member of NATO? They didn't rule that out, but they didn't really do that much to make it happen either. And remember that the hardliners existed in the United States as well as in the Soviet Union, right? So Gorbachev, we remember, uh, faced ultimately a coup by the Soviet hardliners, which spelled and speeded up the end of the Soviet Union. Here in the U.S., you had inside the Pentagon, uh, which Dick Cheney was leading at the time, a lot of hawks who were very suspicious of Baker and his diplomacy with the Soviets and very much pressuring uh, him 
not to go too far uh, and to, you know, do as much as he could to break it into a million little pieces, you know, make it eviscerate it. And of course, it's Putin has played upon the sense in Russian society that uh, a, a victor's peace was imposed, right? That, uh, you know, it wasn't uh, that they lost the Cold War, but that it was somehow taken from them. I, living in Russia for four years, I would say that, you know, Putin was uh, very much represented a, a, a logical consequence of the way in which the Soviet Union fell apart. He is a product of Russia, not the United States. He's a product of the KGB, the fact that they were never fully dismantled, that their power in society uh, had never fully come to terms with. Uh, and Peter and I did a book together. Our first book together was about Putin and his rise. And I never forget going to see uh, the pollster who helped Vladimir Putin in his first election. Uh, and, uh, you know, he said, Russian society, uh, it was like, you know, a river flowing in this direction. Yeltsin, with his talk about democracy and freedom of the press, he was, we dammed up the river. He was an obstacle in that natural river. And, you know, sooner or later, it becomes easier to let the river flow in this direction. Essentially, he said, if Vladimir Putin didn't exist, we would have invented him. And arguably, they sort of did invent him and pluck him from obscurity to represent, uh, you know, kind of the, a kind of politics that was more familiar to Russians. That that's their mean that they reverted to naturally. Yeah. There's a good story you tell that uh, I don't want to say is lost to history because it's hiding in plain sight, but it's something that I didn't remember or never knew that I think is really interesting and, and plays to a little bit to what's going on today in today's world. After um, Bush loses his election, there was a bit of a dust up involving Baker, which led to what sounded like one of the most difficult times in his life, having to do with some sort of uh, passport fiasco in Clinton. I'll let you tell it. But the attorney general at the time, who was Bill Barr, our current attorney general, named an independent counsel. Tell that story. Yeah, it does have some interesting resonance today, doesn't it? It's uh, some people who show up at different parts of the book suddenly reappear uh, later in Baker's life and later in our own lives, uh, that our, that is our country's life. Uh, so at the time, uh, Bush is running against Bill Clinton for re-election, and Clinton uh, was trying to deal with this, this, the questions about his youthful protesting of Vietnam, especially overseas. You know, he was a Rhodes Scholar at Oxford. He had visited Moscow as a young man. There was a whole Republican meme that he might have tried to renounce his citizenship while overseas. No truth to it, but there was then some action to look at his passport file in the State Department to see if there was a letter renouncing his citizenship or something like that. Now, that was in response to FOI requests, freedom of information requests filed by the press, right? But there clearly was a desire on the part of the Bush administration to expedite these requests because it would help them. And that kind of got caught up in a, in a question of whether or not that was legal or not. Was there some violation of a law uh, of the Privacy Act when they did that? And Baker got caught up in that. You're right. After the election, uh, Bill Barr had a deadline before the independent counsel law was going to expire. And the day before, the night before it was going to expire, decided he was going to trigger the appointment of an independent counsel. Now, an independent counsel is different than a special counsel because it was a separate entity that didn't report to the attorney general. It had more independence, hence the title. And both uh, Republicans and Democrats eventually decided they hated that institution, got rid of it. But um, it was a really searing moment for Baker because here's a guy who had 
really cherished his reputation for integrity, kept that file, as we said, of all the things he had said he had not done. And then on the way out the door, he's done with Washington, and they're literally telling him as he's going out the door, you're corrupt and you're crooked and we're now investigating you. So it was a difficult three years. And that independent counsel ended up wrapping up the investigation by saying, nothing to see here. Not only is there no crime, even though there's some dumb things done, I shouldn't have ever been appointed in the first place. That's never happened before. And that was the key. That was the key portion of the story that, that kind of um, left a big impression on me because now with the benefit of history and seeing that the Republican party after Bush moved much more to the right, much further to the right um, and seeing what Bill Barr is willing to do, what he um, has an appetite for in terms of, you know, how far will someone go today? I, I can't help but look back on that and wonder if he was taking a shot. You know, I don't want to question somebody's motives. I don't know all the details of what it was, but it seemed peculiar to me that he would wait until literally a few hours before the deadline to, to, to drop this on him. And then only three years later to have the prosecutor say, this should have never been brought. Yeah, I think uh, Jim Baker might share your interpretation. What he told Baker was, it's much better having independent counsel than the career people of the Justice Department under a Democratic administration. Yeah, I think Baker that that. Jim Baker would agree more with his other interpretation. Yeah. <laughs> Let me ask you this. You know, Ed and I have talked about this. As we all discussed, Watergate decimates the Republican Party, and they have to really build a government or a coalition of a government uh, from from 76 on, and they do that. It's a little bit like starting a business on your own. And let's say it's a family business, and ultimately that family business needs to be passed down to the next generation. And in 94, um, you f- Baker suddenly is, he's thinking about running for president in 96, and he finds himself campaigning for Oliver North, who at the time was a convicted felon. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Newt Gingrich comes in with the Republican wave in 94. And it just seems like that's the point where the family business got passed down to the next generation. Do you, do you see it that way? And that sometimes that second generation, specifically in this case, doesn't understand what type of pragmatism and negotiating and strategy actually goes into building a company in the first place? Well, certainly, let's put it this way. Uh, you know, the, Gingrich not only came in in 1994 in the wave, but he, he self-styled himself as a revolutionary, right? It was the it was the House revolutionaries who were, you know, destroying uh, what had been sort of the ossified Democratic leadership for four decades. Uh, they ran the House of Representatives. And, uh, you know, they saw themselves as the true heirs, by the way, of the Reagan revolution. One thing that Jim Baker was not, that George Herbert Walker Bush was not, was a revolutionary. You know, he is a fundamentally conservative small c, uh, not conservative as we've sort of defined it in recent years, where it's not very conservative at all, right? You know, revolutionaries tend not to be super conservative. Uh, Donald Trump uh, uh, has taken over the American right uh, and they use that label often of conservative, but they're really not conservative. Actually, Jim Baker uh, truly is a conservative, uh, you know, a member of the sort of Texas aristocracy, son, grandson, great grandson of uh, not only lawyers, but essentially sort of institution builders and founders of the modern Houston. And 
you know, just basically opposed to destabilizing change of any kind, which makes it so interesting and in a way made it so fitting that he and Bush were sort of the stewards of the system at a time when the Soviet Union was falling apart and their instincts for stability might have been just sort of what the world needed. And, you know, so then you get to this moment that could have been Baker's moment, right, when he could step out from Bush's shadow and run on his own. But the Republican Party just wasn't interested in that. He was fundamentally not a good fit for it. Uh, you know, we asked him that question in a joint interview with his wife, Susan, and it was funny, Baker was like, well, I was very tired after so many years of running things. And, you know, I thought about it and I could have raised the money. And she's like, oh, honey, come on. You know, the party had moved away from you. And it wasn't, it was perceived or talked about in maybe in ideological terms. But the truth is, is that it's not that Jim Baker some secret progressive, right? That clearly was never the case. It was the style, the inclination being, I think, a different kind of conservative and an establishment Republican at a moment when Gingrich wanted to blow. Th- yeah, um, kind of to follow up on that and bring this in for a landing. You know, when I think back on that era and I think about, you know, the Bush, Reagan, Baker era, you know, I don't want to over romanticize it, you know, because we know these were people who could throw sharp elbows and we know these were people that, you know, had ulterior motives. And, you know, that's just the nature of politics, it's the nature of of acquiring and using power. But I will say this. I, I think it's useful for a human being to have the capacity to feel embarrassed, to feel shame, <laughs> you know, and these were people who cared about how they were perceived. They cared about governing well and an achievement, real achievement. It was a matter of their reputation. And so I, I can't help but ask the, I think the question everybody asks, you know, where Jim Baker's head is today with respect to Republican politics, the current president, his conduct, his character, you know, we can, you know, fair-minded people can agree or disagree on policy, but I, I think it's irrefutable that something very weird is happening. Uh, and we're all sort of trying to grapple, you know, with what to do about it. Now, you know, you folks are journalists and, and, and have to, you know, put your personal feelings aside, but I think, you know, just any fair-minded observation, um, w- would suggest that there's something to be concerned about. And so, from somebody like Jim Baker, who's 90 years old today, who's been through so much, just tell us, walk us through what he thinks about it all. Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think, as we said, we work on this book for seven years, so we, it predates Trump. But when Trump shows up on the scene, we're in the middle of this seven-year conversation with Baker. And so, of course, it becomes a large part of our conversation, like the last five years of it. And we watched him wrestle with this. We watched him struggle to make sense of it. And at first he wanted to find, you know, he didn't like Trump. Trump is not his kind of guy. Trump is the unbaker. You know, he's actually the opposite of so much of what Baker stood for in politics, you know, seriousness of purpose and dignity and, and, and working across the aisles and trying to get stuff done and not about, you know, constant demonization and, and carnival barking kind of politics. And yet he wanted to help Trump, you know, come toward, you know, a more reasonable place, right? So he meets with Trump as a candidate, gives him a two-page memo. Here are some things you can do that will make you... And, of course, Trump puts that right in the circular trash because it's exactly what 
didn't make him president as far as he's concerned, right? And so Baker learns over these five years we're talking to him that this is he's not going to change. He is who he is, and you have to either accept him or not. And he calls him crazy, and he calls him nuts. These are words he used with us in these interviews, and yet – and he, he, he said, I will not endorse him. You know, that was his decision. I will not be part of his administration anyway. I won't help him be a special envoy or give advice. And we have tried to figure out how he reconciles these two things, the discomfort with Trump and the willingness to vote for him. And we've decided as a kind of a parable of the modern Republican establishment as a whole. This guy's not their kind of guy. He's wrecked a lot of the things that they care about, but they have yet to break with him. They can't break with him because in the end, we are a tribal society and you're in one, you're in one camp or the other. Uh, and that's where America is today. I have a feeling that once this is all over, no one's going to admit that they were with it. I was just going to say that. Yeah, I was just well, going to say that. Let's see how it ends. Uh, that is certainly a very likely scenario. Uh, you'll see lots of people uh, in hindsight. It's like those polls uh, of the 1960 race between Richard Nixon and John F. Kennedy, which at the time was basically a dead heat. It was one of the closest presidential elections ever. Oh. And then... Uh, you know, later in the 60s, after Kennedy had been assassinated, you know, I think Gallup famously did that survey. And, you know, something like, you know, 65 percent or 70 percent of Americans said, oh, yeah, I voted for Kennedy. You know, so we'll see. That would be a good outcome. (laughs) The book is The Man Who Ran Washington. Uh, Peter Baker, Susan Glasser, thank you so much for your time. It is a fantastic read. If anyone has any interest at all in history, please go out and buy this book. You will you will not be sorry. Thank, Thank you for sending it to us. Fantastic conversation. Really. Thank you, guys. you guys are really perceptive readers, and I enjoyed it a lot. Yeah, yeah you. you guys have got something good going here. Keep it going. Thanks, y'all. We Thanks. appreciate your time. So, Ed, uh, that was a fantastic uh, conversation. It's your detail. Seven years on that book. That was incredible. There's so much. This book blew me away, and it took me back. And there's so many memories, but I love getting the behind-the-scenes stories of some of the things I remember. Um you know, you know, we were talking about the Willie Horton ad with them. In fairness, we should point out, um, you know, the Bush campaign did not produce that ad. It was an outside group that did it, you know, which gave the Bush campaign sort of like a little bit of cover. And they looked the other way. And Jim Baker played cute with it because he did write a letter eventually to ask them to not run that ad anymore. But he wrote it 25 days after it had already been airing. Yeah, Lee Atwater ultimately apologized, even though um, it wasn't done by the campaign. Lee Atwater, who was the campaign director, recognized that they they had a hand in it, at least. What I would say to anyone who has an interest in politics or history is, you know, don't be fully distracted by the title of The Man Who Ran Washington. This isn't just a look into James Baker and his life. This is a look into us. It's a look into our history. It's a look into how massive global events happened during this person's life. And, you know, we don't get to predict those. We don't get to control those. Uh, and I think that that's really been your question, Ed, which is what what is his role in American history? And is it Hamilton-esque, maybe, would be a good way of asking it. Hamiltonian. <laughs> Hamilton like. You know, I know that's sort of a I mean that's sort of a big leap to make to Alexander Hamilton, but I but I but I only am making it in the sense that, you know, there's a handful of people who've had a just a really, really incredible impact on the on the country who have never been in office. 
And, and so when I'm thinking to myself, well, who are those people? I think you'd have to put him on the same list. I, I just think he's a fascinating guy. You know, he was not, he did not like politics. He, he resented having to go back and run Bush's campaign. He didn't want to be known as a political operative or a fixer. He wanted to be known as a statesman. He said, there's a quote in the book where he says, the campaigns were a necessary, if unseemly, way station in between important jobs. And he wanted to be a problem solver in the mix governing and not really the politics, which is ironic because he was so damn good at it. Yeah, look, and his dislike of politics, um, that wasn't a first-generation perspective. You know, He's the fourth generation of Bakers, yeah. specifically James Bakers in Houston, who said, you know, avoid politics at all costs, stay yeah. away from it. And again, if it's not for the fact that George H.W. Bush moves to Houston and looks up who the club champion is – at the Houston Country yeah. Club and sees that it's James Baker, um, the world could be nothing very changed. different. No, yeah. Everything's different. Yeah, it's interesting. We didn't get a chance to talk to Susan and Peter about this, but his great grandfather judge was a Confederate judge who was removed by Reconstructionist governor once the Union won the Civil War. His grandfather, Captain Baker, was a Houston attorney who was really a founding father of Houston. He founded Rice University which is a whole nother story how that happened. It's a great story. Um, his father was a World War I veteran. I mean, he's really Houston royalty. Yeah, he is. And, and yet again, each generation said, no matter what, stay out of politics. And yeah. um, our benefit, he disregarded that ultimately. You notice there's someone that you and I know pretty well that was in the book. Yeah, our good friend Sig Rogich. Yeah, exactly. So Sig was communications director for Bush. And uh, they tell a story in the book about the famous uh, tank ad where Michael Dukakis climbed into a tank, put on a helmet, and took a little joyride. And uh, Rogich and the team put together an ad that you know famously tanked Dukakis. It was a disaster of a commercial. You know, as someone with this is how I make my living is you know, ads. And it's just uh, incredible that they would have led with their chin that way at a time when their campaign really needed to stop the falling. And then they get in the tank and it's. Yeah. I mean, I think it's fair to say they were less sophisticated about visuals back then, but that is, that ad is the reason why today, you know, whether it's a, a candidate or the president and the administration, you know, staff will not allow, you know, someone at a presentation or something to give the president or the candidate a goofy hat to wear or, or something to put on their head because they just don't want the photo op. It's just a frozen image forever of, of the candidate or the potentially the president looking ridiculous. Yeah, there's one last story I'd like to talk about before we wrap up, Ed, which is, and you and I have talked about this, there's a chapter on the fall of the Berlin Wall. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you're young, you think that there's, that everything is intentional that happens. And that's not what occurs at all when the Berlin Wall falls. Do you want to talk about that? Well, it was an accident. You know, it was an accident of history. There was... um, and I, I don't know if I'm going to get the details exactly right, but there was uh, a Czech uh, border um, guard that began to let people through. They had temporarily allowed uh, the Czech border to open up. Word got around and people started to come. And that Czech border guard checked with his higher ups, uh, not knowing exactly what he should do, and misinterpreted his instructions to just open up the gate. 
And then word started to spread. And then the Germans started to gather around and flood the border crossing to run through. And and these German authorities were just confronted all of a sudden with, with the dark reality that this is either going to happen and or we're going to mow everybody down and this is going to be just a, a massacre and the wall came down. But what's amazing about it is how little we knew about it. And, you know, yeah. I always thought that Baker and Bush were working behind the scenes and they were talking to Chancellor Cole and they were trying to figure out what reunification might look like. Instead, Baker's at uh, an event for Corazon Aquino from the Philippines. Mm-hmm. He gets a note that says this is what's happened. He drives over to the White House and Bush and Baker watch the news coverage mm-hmm. on television. They have no idea what's going on as well. That's what I thought was so interesting. Is yeah, that- and speaking of the news coverage, you know, I think one of the reasons it's cemented in people's mind as something that, you know, was negotiated or, or coming is because by happenstance, Brokaw. by complete happenstance, Tom Brokaw was in Berlin on some other assignment. Exactly. And so when it happened, you had an NBC news crew right there set up, showing people climbing over the wall, hitting it with picks and shovels, and 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 and, and that was broadcast around the world. Yeah, and then it's too late. The toothpaste is out of the tube. That's exactly right. right. Yeah, it makes you, you know it makes you ask the question. You know, did Jim Baker make history, or was he more manager of history? Because so much happens out of your control. This has been a great conversation. I really appreciated their work uh, and their discussion. And um, I just would encourage everyone to buy this book. Yeah, I'm grateful for the book. So you want to uh, read us out? Yeah. This has been The Head and the Heart. You can follow us on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, and Amazon Music. Uh, And please follow us on Twitter, at head underscore heart underscore pod. You can subscribe to our podcast and also leave a review and tell us who you would like us to interview. We're about to wrap up season one of The Head and the Heart. And we're a few more good ones coming. We have a few more good ones coming. And And what's your name? (laughs) This is Perry Rogers. And this is Ed Borgato. And this podcast, like all of them, have been produced by Casey Morris. Thanks, Perry. Thanks, Ed. Thanks, Casey. Thank you. 